As we get ready to open God's word, I want to um, give a quick shout out to my brother Joshua Phillips here who's going to be preaching for us this morning. Just thankful for him and uh, him and Joshua uh, were, uh, were interns slash residents this past year. Um, they're no stranger. Josh is no stranger to you guys. But I'm thankful for this brother, for his, uh, his love for the Lord, his passion for the scriptures. And I think we're all in for a real treat this morning. So let's put our hands together for our brother Joshua Phillips. All right, awesome. So I just want to say that I love you guys so much. I, I love being with you guys, and I look forward to, to coming to church and, and being with you, meeting with my DNA, um, RCs. You guys are just a joy. You are a gift to me, and um, I praise God that he made us family. So, yeah. Um. On top of that, I just wanted to say I'm really excited to bring this message to you. This is the product of the Spirit's work in my life over years, and recently it's culminated within the past couple years in a way that's changed the way that I not only think about everything, but how I feel about everything. So this is near and dear to my heart, and I know that the Lord's not done working in in my heart here and, and that He will speak powerfully through His Word. So uh, bow with me as we pray. Father God, I, I thank you for your goodness that you shed on us every day. You give us rain, you give us sunshine, you bless us with breath, and Lord, you bless us with your word. Lord, your word is truth, and without it we have no life. I pray, God, that you would speak in power today. I pray, God, that you would bless us here with ready hearts to hear from you. And Lord, I pray that we would not hide from your word today. Lord, I pray that you would protect this place from the attack of the enemy. That you would bless us with clear minds that are dedicated to hearing from you and adoring you. Because you are beautiful beyond measure. Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit, that I may declare your word with boldness, and that Jesus will be glorified. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, church, so uh, I want to tell you a story about a woman named Corrie Ten Boom. Some of you may have heard of her. Corrie Ten Boom was a Dutch woman who who, who hid Jews during the Nazi occupation of Holland and, uh, and while they were uh, committing a genocide against the Jewish people. Now, her and her sister Betsy were doing this, and eventually they got caught. They were thrown into the Ravensbrück concentration camp. And there, Corey Ten Boom experienced unrivaled cruelty and, and, and terror and torture. And there was one guard in particular that was especially cruel to her. Now, eventually, Corey Ten Boom was able to survive 
when the Allies liberated the camp, but her sister, Betsy, was killed by this guard. And so after the war, she made a home for the victims of the Nazi occupation, where they could recover and rebuild and, and get their lives back. And one thing that she found is that those victims that were able to forgive their enemies, the, the Nazis who had done terrible things to them, they were able to re-enter life and have happy lives no matter what kind of wounds they still carried with them. But those who nursed their bitterness never left the home. They died there in their own bitterness. So because of the lessons she, she got there, she traveled the world teaching on the forgiveness that's in Jesus Christ. Now one time when she was teaching in Munich, Munich, Germany, she, she was talking about forgiveness, how our sins are cast to the bottom of the sea. And afterwards, she saw a man uh, approach her in a trench coat. And she recognized him immediately. It was that Nazi guard. And as he approached her, he said, Corey, thank you so much for your message. I know that you, you mentioned the, the Ravensburg concentration camp. I was a guard there. And when I was, and, and after the war, I've since become a Christian. And I know that Jesus has tossed my sins to the bottom of the sea. But I've been praying and asking him for the opportunity to, to, to apologize and ask forgiveness to one of my victims. And so Fräulein, Fräulein, uh, Fräulein Tenboom, will you forgive me? And he put out his hand. And I want to read to you what she said. This is her description of what happens. And I stood there, I who since had every day to be forgiven and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand, I can do that much. You supply the feeling. So woodenly and mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, and sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. <clears throat> so this, this attitude and dedication to forgiveness and loving one's enemies is completely counter to how our culture deals with enemies. I'm sure you've heard phrases like this, and you may have even said them yourself. Listen, I'm the nicest person in the world, and I'll be friends with anybody, but don't cross me. Right? Or, uh-uh-uh. They didn't just go there. Now the gloves are coming off. And this one's my favorite. Oh, I'll forgive, but I never forget. We've heard all these, right? We've said them. This is how our culture measures manhood. Also, this is how our culture sets the standard for an independent woman that you do not be pushed around. 
But we don't care about what our culture says on how to deal with our enemies. We want to hear what Christ says. And so today, we are going to, to be breaking down Matthew 5, 38 through 47. But before I do that, you don't have to turn there quite yet. I want to address some hindrances that some of us will inevitably have in our hearts towards this passage. And I say that because I've, I've experienced this as well. I grew up in the church. I grew up reading my Bible. And every time I read this passage, I would read it and I would try and interpret it differently than what Jesus was clearly saying. I was like, man, there's got to be a way around it. There's no way Jesus means what he says he means because if he does mean it, then my life is going to have to change too much. We are not going to do that here today. There will be no dodging of the scriptures. God has spoken and his word is life for our souls. So I will do my best not to apologize for this text. And to, to show you why this is important, this text in particular is incredibly important because earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, which I'm sorry, this passage is in the Sermon on the Mount, which is a sermon that Jesus gave to his followers to tell them how to live as citizens in his kingdom. This is what he says in verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of God. Sorry, kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So I will tell you, church, I have no interest in being least in the kingdom of God, so I will not teach you to relax these teachings, and I would not encourage you to relax these teachings. So stand with me as we read the word. We will be reading Matthew 5. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. If you're using the Pew Bibles, I believe it's page 810. Looking at verse 38. This is Jesus speaking. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Amen. Go ahead, be seated. So the passage that we just read, again, is part of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon of, of the Mount was given to Jesus' Jewish disciples. They were all crowded around, listening to him preach. 
and they were from the region, of, the region called Judea. Judea is present-day Israel. And for, for nearly 100 years, Judea had been occupied by the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire and their soldiers had great contempt for the Jewish people. They treated them very cruelly, and any sign of rebellion was crushed with, 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 ter- with basically terrorist activity. They were slaughtered. Now, on top of that, when they were peacefully submissive to the Roman Empire, they were overly taxed, way more than even here in Cook County, right? Sometimes people here feel like revolting. Um, and they were f- oftentimes forced to do the Roman soldiers' work for them. The Jews, the, the Jews were greatly held in contempt by the Roman soldiers. Their culture was ridiculed, and their faith was ridiculed. Because of all of this, many Jews were tempted to become revolutionaries called zealots. So they could overthrow the Roman Empire in Judea because they loved their country. They loved their faith and they loved their culture. And so Jesus, as a Jewish religious teacher, would have been expected to preach against the Jews' enemies. But instead he flips the entire conversation. Let's turn to that first verse again, verse 38. He says... You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now this this phrase right here, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, you may have heard this before. Oftentimes this is used to justify revenge in our culture. But actually, this is a verse from the Old Testament in the law that God gave to the people of Israel through the prophet Moses. It was a law given to actually put a limit on revenge because think about it if someone pokes out your eye you want to poke out both their eyes right you always want to one-up them if if someone kills your kills your brother you go kill their entire family that's how it worked back then and so this law was given to say no justice means that When something is done, you can only repay back what has been done. If you lose a tooth, you take a tooth. If they steal from you, they give back what they stole. It's God's way of bringing justice. Now, of course, with with the Roman Empire in power, the Old Testament law was not in place in Judea. And so the zealots saw this as a justification. We are not doing anything different than what the Romans are doing to us. We are keeping in line with the law, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But Jesus is not just establishing the old kingdom. He is not just bringing about the old law. He is bringing a new law and ushering in a new kingdom. And so that's what we see in the next verse. Listen to what he says in verse 39. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. All right, Jesus. So so he says before 
the old law was given to put a limit on retaliation. I am putting an end to retaliation altogether. And notice he says, he doesn't define who the the person who is evil is. He leaves it vague so that anyone who is evil can fit into that category. On top of that, he simply says, do not resist. Now, what does he mean here? What are you talking about, Jesus? Are we just supposed to let evil happen all around us? What a way to live is this? What kind of just kingdom is this? Well, we need to, we need to define what Jesus means by the word resist. Almost every time in the, in the scriptures when this word resist is used, it's in reference to violently resisting. To violently seek to harm and cause destruction against the enemies of God. And so what Jesus is saying here is not that we do not resist, but we do not seek to harm or destroy the person who is evil. There will be plenty of resistance that we will see in these next examples that that Jesus gives. Because what we will find is that we overcome the evil of the world by the love of the kingdom. So the next phrase in verse 39 says... But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to, the, turn to him the other also. Now, this is a little weird, right? But this may not be clear to us, but it would have been clear to them. So I want to take your right... Who's right-handed? Raise your hand. Okay, so the vast majority of, a, majority of us are right-handed. Use your right hand and touch your right cheek. Okay? Now, put it out. Picture someone in front of your face and slap them. What cheek are you slapping? You're slapping their left cheek, right? In order, if you are right-hand dominant, which the vast majority of people are, you need to backhand them. Can you imagine how much disrespect you need to have for someone to backhand them? This would have meant a lot more to them because they were an honor-based society. So what that means is if you backhanded someone, you did not consider them human. You considered them subhuman. In fact, there was a heavier punishment for backhanding someone than if you just straight up slapped them because of that. So if a Roman soldier wanted to humiliate a Jew, he would backhand him. And so not only was there the pain of the assault, there was the pain of the insult. And so what we see is if a Jew wanted to recover their honor and recover from that shame, they had to retaliate. They had to defend their honor. Now, if you're thinking, okay, this is a slap. I can obey this rule. Well, in Luke, Jesus preaches this sermon again, and he says, if if someone strikes you on the cheek, which is a punch, an assault. So we we feel this same way too. So, So let's say someone insults you. Sometimes what you are tempted to do is insult them back, otherwise they get the last word, right? But Jesus is saying, no. When they slap you on the right cheek, you absorb the insult and and, and the attack and be willing to take another. Because what this does is it demonstrates to the person that you don't live by the same cultural rules 
you don't find your honor in this culture. You live in a different kingdom, and you only care about what the king thinks. You overcome the shame of this world by the love of the kingdom. And then we get to the next verse. Verse 40. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. This is a different one as well, right? But it would have been super clear to them. Because a tunic was, was, it's your shirt and your pants combined. Women, you have like, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's like a dress, but everybody wore it. So guys, you're wearing a dress with a belt and it's tight. So, so that's what it's like. It covers everything. Now, in the law, you could only sue someone to the point of taking their tunic. You could take everything up to their tunic, and they could take the tunic. So they could literally take the shirt off of your back. But the one thing that they could not take was your cloak. The reason why is because your cloak is this big, heavy robe that's kind of like a coat that covers your entire body. If you were homeless, it would give you shelter, it would keep you warm at night, and it would keep you protected from the sun. To take that would basically be subjecting the person to not only shame because they would be naked, but also, but also probably death. And so what we see here is Jesus is saying, listen, if someone is trying to sue you and take everything from you, up, up to how much they legally can, say, here, I will give you what you cannot take from me. You turn an act of oppression and cruelty into an act of generosity. It's as if you're saying, listen, if you need all of this, let me give you my cloak as well, so you may have all that you, all that you need. So, notice, who's now making the power move. It's no longer the oppressor, but the oppressed that makes the decisive action. See, the kingdom of God turns all oppression into an act of generosity. And then what we see in the next verse, in verse 41... And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. What does he mean here? So, this is where we get our phrase, go the extra mile. Now, when we use that term, we mean someone who works really hard at their job, does more than they're asked, or does something extra for their family, right? But that's not what this means here. This is specifically referring to the fact that a a that a Roman soldier could force any subject of the empire to carry their bag for one mile on a march. So they would tell you, stop everything you're doing, leave your bags if you're carrying bags, and carry my bag for a mile. And then you would be forced to then walk back to get your stuff or go back to where you were at. And Roman soldiers were known for taking advantage of this and requiring people to go longer than they than they had to. And so, what Jesus is saying, and by the way, the, Jew, the, the Jewish zealots especially, they hated this. Because they hated the Roman Empire, but they were being forced to help the Roman Empire by carrying the bags of the soldiers. 
What Jesus says here, though, is when someone forces you to go one mile with them, go with them two. And you turn an act of a Roman soldier showing dominance over someone into an act of kindness. It's like this. If, 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 a Roma, if, if you had carried the bag for a mile, you'd the, they would say, okay, great, I'll take my bag back now. You say, no, 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 it's okay. I'll, I'll carry it another mile. Now, the Roman soldier probably has no idea what's going on, right? No one else does this. And on top of that, if a Roman soldier did get caught requiring them to carry it longer, they would be killed. So if you're carrying the bag, and you say, okay, I'll carry it another mile, then the soldier has to say, no, 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 no. Here, I'll take my bag. Please give me my bag back. So with an act of kindness, you disarm your enemy. In the kingdom of God, we take the evil of the world and overcome it by the love of the kingdom. And then when we get to the next verse, it says something a little bit different. In verse 42, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. It's pretty clear, right? If someone is in need of help, help them out. If, if someone needs to borrow from you, give them what they need. And then in other parts of scripture, what we see is Jesus tells them, if someone borrows from you, don't charge them interest and do not expect it back. Now this is different though because where's the enemy? Where's the evil person? We don't have an oppressive soldier hanging their head and requiring something of you. Instead, we have a, a, a friend or a beggar who's in need of help and is destitute. So what's going on here? Let me ask you this. Why do you think people have revolutions and overthrow evil rulers. They do it because either they or someone they know has been subject to an act of cruelty and is now destitute. And so they have a desire to... That's why the zealots here, on top of their faith, want to kill the Romans and overthrow them so their people won't be oppressed anymore. What Jesus is saying, instead of killing the Romans to overthrow them, what you need to do is take those who are suffering because of their evil deeds and help them out. Elevate the one who's in need. We respond to the evil of this world with love for the oppressed. And by doing so, as Romans 12 says... We are not overcome by evil, but we overcome evil with good. And that brings us to our, our central command, the central command of this passage. It's in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Not only are you commanded not to resist the evil person, you are commanded to love your enemy. Love the evil person. Do good for them. Pray for those who persecute you. Every one of the examples that we just gave 
are, are rooted in this command. You love your enemy when they assault you by showing them mercy. You love your enemy when they sue you by giving them out of generosity. You love your enemy when they force you to go to, to, to do something that you didn't want to do by doing more for them. You love your enemy when they've committed injustice by reversing the injustice. Romans 12 builds on this. And so, by the way, I, I want to point this out. The most popular verse that people all know and, and, and talk about is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that forever believes in him shall have eternal life. Right? Well, the most popular verse in the early church for the first 400 years is this verse. Love your enemies. The early church captured something that there is something central to the Christian message about loving your enemies. And that's why Paul here takes this up and we see this in Romans 12, verse 14. He says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless the, them and do not curse them. And then he, then he brings it up again in 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will keep burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We respond to evil with loving action. Can you imagine what the Jews, who many of them had grown up spending their entire lives hating Romans would have felt about this? I'm sure you can, because you have enemies of your own. Now, as we've gone through this passage, there's probably a number of questions and concerns that you have. So I want to step back a little bit and address some of those. First off, for some of you, this is a sensitive passage. Maybe you're in a situation, in a relationship, where you are either being physically or sexually abused. I need to t have you listen to me here clearly. This passage is not commanding you to stay in that situation. Please leave. Find safety. Get help. Get someplace where someone can help you. You observe this command by stopping the abu abuse and escaping. On top of that, report the person. Please. You are not violating the command to love your enemy by reporting them. This is actually how you love your enemy. Because here's the thing. They need to be held accountable for their actions. And when they do, that's when they're going to be able to receive the help that they need to become the person that God wants them to be. You are deeply loved by God. You have worth and value. And that needs to be preserved. And if you are an abuser here, God's judgment is on you. I command you, by the authority of the word of God, to repent of your wickedness and lack of self-control. Forgiveness is offered to you, but you need to get help. 
So here, if you're being abused, you do, this is not a command to stay, stay in this situation. Now, completely separate question. Some of you may be wondering, well, who is my enemy here? Surely Jesus is not expecting me to love that terrorist or love that criminal or, or love that that person did the, that to me. Fill in the blank. Well, first off, I have two things to say about that. When Jesus is talking to them about loving their enemies, the first thought that a Jew has is they're thinking about the Romans. We've already established the Romans were super cruel people to the Jews. So they're already bad enough. Anything that you have probably fits within that category. Second off, when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, one of them that he listed was love your neighbor as yourself. And then one of the scribes, and it says, seeking to justify himself, said, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied with a story about a Samaritan, which is someone from the, the area of Samaria, showing love to an Israelite. Israelites and Samaritans were blood enemies for centuries. When he gave that parable, he was basically saying, anybody you come across is your neighbor. So anyone who is your enemy fits within this command. Now you may be saying, okay, that's great. I will love anybody. I'm able to forgive them myself. And if they come at me, I'm like, like I, can, I can forgive them of that. But if someone comes against my family or someone I care about, no more rules. It's, it's done. Mama Bear's coming out, right? That's, that's how we, that we say that stuff a lot. And here's the thing. What is the very definition of an enemy? Is not someone who is coming against your family the very definition of an enemy that you would hate? We cannot get around the scriptures here. Remember? We're not doing that today. What we sometimes do is we take difficult commands in the scriptures and we find other commands like protect your family and love your neighbor and we put them in front of the other commands. That is not how God designed this. We need to find ways to love our enemies, protect our families, love our neighbors at the same time. All of God's word is a command for your flourishing. Now, maybe you'll say, okay, great. Well, all right, so I've got to love everybody, but uh, you know what? I'll just love them in my heart. I'll forgive them in my heart, but that's about it. That's all I'm going to do for them. Listen, if the Jews can be accused of loving God with their hands and not their hearts, then that is loving God with your heart and not with your hands. It's a contradiction. That is not the kind of love that Jesus describes here. The love that Jesus describes here is a love for your enemies that involves activity. You feed them. You give them water when they're thirsty. You pray for them. And and what you're desiring for them, what this love is, is doing is you desire and you seek for them to become the person God wants them to be. So, so you pray, Lord, 
please forgive them, bring them into your kingdom, have them be a follower of you. But on top of that, you go beyond that and you pray over them what you would pray for your family member or a friend. If you cannot do some of these other activities, you need to at least be praying for good over them. Now, maybe you're saying to yourself, and you take this from a more pragmatic angle, Josh, and here in the scriptures, Jesus, this just isn't practical. You can't just go around spending your whole life loving your enemies. There's two things I'd say to that. First off, most of the time when we say we cannot love our enemies, it is not because there is no way to do it. It is because we have never thought of another way to do it. Okay, men especially, we do this, okay, right? So think about this. How many times have you played in your head, okay, if someone comes at me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to swipe their leg, punch their throat. I'm going to grab this, this pencil and I'm going to stab it in their eye like Jason Bourne. Like, we're going we're gonna to find a way to do this. I do this, right? We do this. And, or maybe, like it's, maybe it's not even like, you know, a physical violent confrontation. Maybe it's someone says, sa- says something to you and they've been insulting you and bringing things up. And so you say, okay, great. Next time they say this, I'm going to bring this up. I'm going to insult them here. And that's going to shut them up. These are not Christian ways of thinking about things. We need to take all of that creative energy... Because think about it. If, if all of us guys were as, as tough and as, and as, as, as strong as we, as we thought we were, we'd have six special teams, te- te- special teams teams here in, the, in this room, right? So we need to take all that creative energy, and we need to be thinking of ways we can actively love our enemies, find ways to solve conflict in a way that honors God's command to love our enemies. Now, sometimes... There is no way to solve it. Sometimes the peaceful solutions do not work, right? In that situation, we cannot sacrifice the command to be faithful on the altar of practicality. As Christians, we are commanded to be faithful, not effective. Sometimes effectiveness follows faithfulness, but faithfulness is your primary concern as a Christian. And so we need to become people who are willing to do that. Now, we've talked a lot about what Jesus is commanding here, describing what it means, bringing up some concerns. But we need to know, what we haven't talked about is why we need to love our enemies. Okay? We need, in the Christian life, we need to have a foundation on things because every command of God is based in the heart and wisdom of our Father. And because of that, God doesn't desire that we obey out of legalism, but out of intimacy with his character. And so I'm going to give you a few foundations on, on why we love our enemies. First off, our hearts need enemy love. When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, he said, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. He gave this command 
because it is Christ's desire that his love reign in every cavern of our hearts. When we love our enemies, the love of Christ reaches to the deepest parts of our hearts because that's typically the last place we love, right? And then when the enemy fear and enemy f- and, and enemy hate leaves our soul, all that's left is Christ reigning in our hearts. We need the fire of God's love to consume us. So break down those boundaries. Allow his love to flow through your heart. And then we have another foundation here in the next verse. In verse 45. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. When we love our enemies, we reflect the actions of our Father God. This this is so key that Jesus, earlier in the sermon, says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be sons of God. When we love our enemies, we reflect that we are sons and daughters of the Father. Conversely, when we choose to nurse that bitterness in our soul, we are in contradiction to the life of our God. While you're hating your enemy, God is daily pouring out his common grace on them. He gives them sunlight. He gives them rain. He gives them shelter. He provides for them financially. He gives them moments of laughter. He gives them breath. So who are we to withhold our resources, our prayers, and our forgiveness from those who God unconditionally sheds his grace on, just like he does us? It is, it, it is how we are consistent with the character of God. And then we get to the next verse. It's two verses, verses 46 through 47. He says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do that? This is what he's saying here. God is not pleased and he is not impressed when we love those who already love us. You do not, you cannot determine whether you are a loving person by how you treat those you already care about. All of the people you despise, tyrants, you know, criminals, um, wicked people, they all do the same. They love their families. They love their friends. They love their fans. They love those who talk good about them. There's nothing special about that. But the way that you gauge a character that's been transformed by the love of Christ and whether you are a loving person is if you love your enemies. And the last and most, most foundational reason why we love our enemies because God in Christ continues to extend his loving mercies through the life and death of Jesus Christ to your enemies. For God so loved your enemy that he gave his only son, that any of your enemies believe on him, they will have eternal life. 
Now, you may ask, where's the justice in that? What they have done deserves punishment. What I can tell you is, is, is something here. Jesus will bring justice in all situations. There's two ways that he brings justice. First off, when he returns again, and he steps foot here on earth, he will bring ultimate justice. Every wicked deed, every sin and act of cruelty will be punished. The fires of hell are reserved for those who do not repent of their wickedness. And that is good news, people. There is no evil that God will not cleanse. And this is what frees us to love our enemies. Do you remember when we read Romans 12, what he says? Do not ever avenge your enemies, but leave it to God, because God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. We leave the judgment up to God, because when he does, ours is imperfect, and his is ultimate. And so we must take that as a freedom to love our enemies, because justice is not on us. But there's a second way that he brings justice. Because remember, no sin will go unpunished. The wrath of God will be poured out on sin. But another way that he brings justice is he takes what is sick and he brings healing. He takes what is broken and he fixes it. He makes things just right. And he does this to your enemies. By offering that reconciliation, that healing through the blood of his son Jesus. You see, every sin will, get, will be punished, but the Bible promises that when your enemies put their faith in him, all of their sins, all of their cruelty is put on Christ. So on the cross, when he died, all of the wrath that they deserved, all of their wickedness was slaughtered in the body of Christ. He bought their reconciliation. He drank their wrath. And he extends to them reconciliation still today. So who are we to deny them the reconciliation that God still offers? And don't forget, we were all enemies of Christ. Romans 5.10 says that while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. We all hated God. We all lived in rebellion against him and shook our fist at his ways, including the, the command to love our enemies. My grandmother was such an enemy of God. When my mother in high school came up to my grandmother and told her that she had become a believer and had dedicated her life to following Jesus, my grandmother physically beat her. In all of my time with my grandmother, I do not ever remember her doing anything good that did not have an ulterior motive. She was constantly manipulating the family and turning her kids against each other for her benefit. She was vindictive toward a very loving husband. And anytime someone brought up the work of Christ, she would laugh and say, 
Well, aren't all Christians hypocrites? If anyone was an enemy of God, it was her. But then, about a year ago, God gave her cancer. And all of a sudden, it's okay, it's okay. You're fine. You don't have to be embarrassed. <laughs> the, and all of a sudden, the, her heart became to, began to soften. And she became repentant for the way that she had treated the family. The Holy Spirit did a work in her so that when the, the good news of Jesus was spoken over her, she welcomed it with warmth. A few months before she passed, I had the opportunity to speak and pray with her, and I asked her, you know, Grandma, do you know that you're going to be with Jesus in heaven when you die? Because it's coming soon. And she said, yes, I do. He spoke to me. He told me that he's never going to leave me, that he loves me, and that I have nothing to fear because he's forgiven me. She passed away a little over a week ago. She greeted death happily. My grandmother is no longer an enemy of God. She is no longer tainted by sin. She stands with him in glory and she is reconciled to God. All because God chose to love his enemy. Family, Jesus died for you. He bore your sins. Now some of you have heard this message before and you've believed it and you are now part of the family of God. But some of you here may not be part of the family of God. You realize that today you have lived your life as his enemy and you need the forgiveness of Christ. That is freely offered to you here today. Today is the day you become part of the family of God. All you do is with faith put your trust in Jesus. Trust that he has borne your sins and paid for them and dedicate the rest of your life to making him king over what, how you live your life. So if God has so loved his enemies, we need to love ours. So how can we do that today? Well, I have four things that we need to do because in order to love our enemies in a way that's consistent and reflects Christ, a lot of us need to have major heart change. So this is how that happens. So first off, we need to identify who our enemy is. For some, it's Muslims. For some, it's Republicans or Democrats. You have nothing good to say about, and all that comes out is insults. That is your enemy. For some of you, it's a frustrating boss or a coworker who's a jerk, or it's someone at school who always tries to find ways to humiliate you. Maybe it's an ex-wife or an ex-husband who always seems to work against you. Or it's someone here at this church. Let's bring it a little bit closer to home. Sometimes your enemy can be your husband or your wife. The person who's supposed to love you more than anyone else, yet they always seem to find ways to undercut you. They, they use anything in their repertoire to insult you and cut you down. 
You guys do not see eye to eye, and, and there's animosity there. When that's the state of your marriage, romantic love often won't get you through. But I can tell you what will, enemy love. Enemy love is what God promises to give us in Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to let that in. And we can't deal with the problem of enemy hate, enemy bitterness, unless we identify the problem. Second off, with our enemies' names and faces and deeds before our eyes, we need to bring that in prayer. We need to ask the Lord, forgive me of my bitterness. Forgive me of hatred in my heart. Forgive me when I've let anger rule my interactions with them. And then we need to pray for them that the Lord would forgive their sins and not hold it against them. That they would be able to escape the punishment of their sin and become a follower of Jesus. But then we also need to pray good over them. We need to pray that the Lord bless them in their finances, that He bless their families, that He bless them with happiness, that He bless them that every good that they do do, that they will prosper in that work. Anything that you would pray over someone you love needs to be prayed over your enemies. Now, thirdly, what we need to do is we need to take seriously that this is not going to be easy. We need to fight every inclination in our heart that would rise up against our enemy. Because you can forgive them once, but I can guarantee you it will come back. This is a sin that needs to be killed on a daily basis. Do you remember that story about Corey Ten Boom that I told? Well, she taught on forgiveness all her life. And near the end of her life, she, she, was te- she was speaking at one of these events, and she was te- telling a story about how just recently she had to forgive some of her friends. And, when she, and after she, she gave this, one of her other friends was sitting down having a conversation with her, and he said, Corey, you know, those friends you were talking about, did they receive the forgiveness that, that you offered them? And she said, well, no. They argue that it never even happened. But I have the proof right here. I have letters in black and white proving everything that they did. Let me show you. And his friend said, Corey, 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 aren't there sins at the bottom of the sea? You still have them etched in black and white? She realized that she had still not fully forgiven them, so she took those letters and threw them in the fire. We need the love of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts. And what's good is that's what the Holy Spirit does. Romans 5.5 5 says, For the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We need to kill sin, and specifically enemy hate. So let me read to you uh, something that, that John Piper says about that. He says this, There is a mean 
violent streak to the real Christian life. Now we must ask this, violence against whom? Not other people. Not other people. Not Muslims, not Hindus, not Buddhists, not secularists, not atheists, not wives, husbands, children, or ordinary bosses. But on every impulse in our soul to be violent towards other people. We need to take that sin when it rises into us, possibly in this very moment, and we need to kill it where it stands. Now, this is going to be a regular fight. And we have numerous enemies. And we cannot all love them the same way. And on top of that, we just already talked about how our imaginations have been limited in how we love our enemies. We cannot love our enemies on our own. So what we need to do is be a community that is dedicated to enemy love. We need to be a community that talks about it. Because the world will tell us all day how to deal with our enemies. But we need to figure it out together with the word of God. So I'm going to encourage you. DNAs are almost wrapping up. But here in the fall, when real community groups meet up, when our larger groups get together, make that a priority to be there. And as you deal with your hatred or bitterness against an enemy... Call up a sister. Call up a brother. Ask them to pray for you. When you seriously are committed to seeking to love your enemy, talk to them about it. Ask them how you can love that person better. Now, not in a way that is gossip, okay? There's a way that we can talk about enemy love that's just us venting about our enemy. This is not what we need to do. We need to be a a community dedicated to reconciliation. That means when we talk about it, we intend on doing something. But we cannot deal with the darkness in our own hearts, let alone the unrepentant hearts of our enemies without each other. So even as the prayer team come up here as I close in prayer, I would encourage you to come up and receive prayer. Ask the Lord to forgive that stuff in your heart and that he give you wisdom. And So I'm going to close this here in prayer as the worship team comes up, I think. Um, But... uh, um, Bow your heads as we pray. Father, I I thank you for your deep and never-ending love towards us. You've poured out your love in enormous ways. Thank you again for the cross. You won this enemy, Lord. Lord, even as I prepared this in this morning, bitterness rose up in my heart against some people. Forgive me, God. Forgive us here. I pray, Lord, that as we, as we face our enemies again today or this week, that you would fill our hearts with love and mercy. And I pray that we would dedicate ourselves to your kingship and the, the rule and law of your kingdom. We ask these things in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit. Amen.